Tom Bernard Show with Andy Brandt Bernard, Mike Molina, Doug Sprinthal, Mike Bryant. And we'll be right back. Brandon Webb, our special guest up next, Tom Bernard Show. Michael, you want to do a live spot? Yeah, we can run the commercial. That's fine. Okay. He's being late. You big baby. Don't talk to adjusters. <laughs> 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 okay, I'm done. <laughs> Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap well what's interesting to me is you know a lot of people have fear of attorneys it makes them very uncomfortable they get nervous about it what should i do i've known michael for years and years now and i would highly recommend you so that should be good enough for everybody because i don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. It's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? uh, Either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. What do you think of this, ladies and gentlemen? Doug Sprinthal, Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. The cool thing about buying a car from Walzer is you don't have to talk to an adjuster. That's true. If you want to know how much it is, you can just go on our websites and check. Now, here's something interesting that's going on in the automotive world. A lot of the new car manufacturers are trying to protect their brand so they won't allow us to advertise or display any ad prices under either MSRP or lower than invoice. Uh, and it creates a problem for us. Uh, Toyota, starting the 1st of March, we've just got an okay that if you sign into our website at walzertoyota.com, uh, either socially on Facebook or just we need your email address, Toyota considers that creating a one-to-one relationship. We unlock the entire site. You can see every price in every car we sell. So a little bit of a hoop to jump through, but it's not a Walzer thing, and we're working with the manufacturers to find ways around it. That's the spot. Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. It's funny you hear that now and you don't know which song it's going to be. You got that do 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 There's about 15 different songs that have that That's line. That's true. Brandon Webb, our special guest. How you doing, Brandon? Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Total focus, making better decisions under pressure. Brandon, you're talking to the number one guy you should be talking to because I don't know about pressure. I I guess I'm under pressure sometimes, but I a lot of times don't make the best decision under pressure. So (laughs) I might need to learn a few things from you today. What do you do at work when a hundred crises seem to be happening at the same time? Do you pick just one priority to try to put out every fire? How can you stay composed, figure out what really matters, and act decisively when former U.S. Navy SEAL sniper Brandon Webb transitioned to civilian life? He struggled to get his first startup business off the ground, raised millions for his new venture, only to lose it all as problems spiraled out of his control. So what would you do from that point on, Brandon? You know what? You know, I was 
in the SEAL team for 10 years, ran the sniper program and worked with a lot of um, some of the best coaches in the world on mental management. And when I got out and transitioned from a very structured military environment to civilian life where there's no structure, um, you know, I, I bit off just more than I could chew in my first business venture and, and realized after losing everything and getting a divorce. <laughs> so I, I think I owed people money and, and I was in a really low spot in my life. And I said, you know what? I need to practice what I used to preach as a sniper instructor and I just started applying a lot of the principles that I taught in the sniper school to my own life. And one of them is focus, you know, being able to, to focus, especially in today, today's world, we have so many distractions with social media and cell phones. Um, and so this was, the book Total Focus is my journey, kind of transitioning and applying a lot of stuff that I learned in the SEAL team. And in real life, like I, I've been an entrepreneur now for over 10 years, and I've completely reinvented myself and built up an eight-figure, you know, media and e-commerce business from scratch. And so I just, I, I had said, you know what, I want to put this into a book and, and pass on a lot of these lessons uh, to my own children, but also, you know, the, the larger readership. Well, I think it's a wonder. I think don't don't you think that most people have no idea how to operate under pressure? The thing that just struck me while you were talking. What'd you say, Andy? I said I Andy do. Does. <laughs> a lot of people cannot handle any sort of pressure. What's even the like the smallest thing? Like, oh, I'm five minutes late for an appointment or something. They just break, and I don't get it. Yeah. Why do you think that is, Brandon? No, I, I think. There's so many reasons, right? Like, as a parent today myself, I make sure that I put my children in situations where they're going to fail. Like, they're, you know, you have to go out in life and experience failure because it's a learning tool um, that gives them the tools they need to succeed. And I, I see it all the time. And it, as I transition out of the military, uh, to Andy's point, you, a little thing goes wrong and people just lose it. And, and I think a lot of it is they haven't been properly prepared for life, whether they've been coddled as a, as a, a child. And, just, and I've seen it in SEAL training as well. During my SEAL training class, we started with 220 and graduated, I think, 23 originals. But the guys that made it through were ones that are all experienced adversity up to that point. And we'd have, say, a, a full-ride scholarship athlete to Stanford quit be one of the first guys to quit because he never really had to experience adversity up to that point maybe gifted athletically and just you know never had to deal with adversity so i think it's important as parents to really put put your kids in situations where they can learn how to deal with with adversity and and as an adult it's a good practice to get into to as well and you know when you when you are in those situations you realize that you know, being five late, five minutes late because the subway is, you know, isn't running well. You just you learn to to kind of like deal with with things and prioritize what really matters in your life. And you you realize that a lot of things it's just not getting it's just no good getting worked up over it. You know, it's amazing, Brandon. And this hit this story was from a week or two ago. I think it was last week actually, and it just hit me right between the eyes. There were a young couple. 
uh, that wanted to sail around the world, so they uh, quit their jobs and and they bought a sailboat for about 15 cents, and it sank the first day, and you know things haven't gone well, but they're still going to go. But as I was reading the story about why they uh, they wanted to sail around the world, the young woman said, "I just couldn't." take the corporate world any longer i just couldn't stand to be in the corporate world any longer they did she, they didn't even make it out of tampa bay wait till they get out into the ocean right. she's gonna think the corporate world's a cakewalk <laughs> but yeah no kidding here's the problem you're talking to a kid that lived on a sailboat for seven years and sailed halfway around the world oh did you oh, really? my dad threw, did, threw me off the boat in tahiti when i was 16 so i know all all about it so you know all about this the amazing thing about that story is I couldn't take the corporate pressure in the corporate world anymore. She was 24. I want to hear yeah. about a 16-year-old kid winding up in Tahiti by himself. <laughs> that Let's sounds like the real story. 16-year-old in Tahiti. Let's hear that one, Brandon. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, I was reading your, your bio, Tom, and uh, when you talk about your first job as a, as a janitor, I, I had a job cleaning boat stores as a 12-year-old kid, and then I got a dream job working on a scuba diving boat from 12 to 15, and so I had a lot of boating experience. I learned how to scuba dive, and then my dad had, had taken our family on a couple trips to Mexico on a sailboat, and he announced to the family one night, hey, we're going on this world trip. I'm not going to be the guy that's sitting on the in the marina talking about this trip we're never going to take. Right. So he threw us on the boat, and off we off we went. I was in. Uh, I was my junior year in high school, and I didn't want to leave. I had this great job, and I just was 16. I wanted, wanted to chase girls and get my driver's license. <laughs> but um, I made it to from Acapulco. We sailed 30 days. It was a 30-day passage to the Marquesas Islands, <coughs> and my dad and I started arguing about everything because I had <laughs> a chip on my shoulder and I had a ton of boating experience. And I made it to Papa Ete Tahiti when I learned a very important lesson. There can be one captain on the ship and one <laughs> captain only. And he said, son, it's time for you to leave. He said, I'll help you kind of get on your way, but this isn't working out. So I left, I left home in Papa Ete Tahiti on our 47-foot catch and found passage to Hawaii on a catamaran. At 16? 16 years old. I finished my junior year. I went back to California. Um, The owner of the boat I worked on let me work on the boat and and live on the boat and finish high school. And then I joined the Navy. Wow. That's an amazing story. Weren't you terrified at 16 years old? You know, I was ready for it, but I I wrote about it in my first book, The Red Circle, um, the whole kind of experience, because it... It seemed normal to me until I got older in life, and people were like, "Hey, hey, guy, that's not a normal childhood." <laughs> um, but no. I, I cried. I mean, I cried the first two, three nights like a baby at night. I remember getting off my shift, and I literally said, "What the hell am I doing? I'm, I'm on my own." <laughs> I grabbed a backpack with with my worldly belongings and, and left home. And it, you know, it was like anything you. It was terrifying, but once you kind of confront confront the situation, you, you just learn how to deal with it. So, you know, yeah. I, I was fortunate. I, I I think I, you know, my parents did a good job kind of preparing me, and I was an independent kid up to that point. And you know, I was I've been on my own, and so far it worked out pretty good. What's amazing about that? I look back at my life. I was 18 years old. 
Uh, so two years older than you, and it wasn't like I was dumped off on an uh, uh, But I just, I was in my mother's basement playing bumper pool with some people. And it all of a sudden just struck me, and I don't know why, and I'll, I remember it was on December 10th, uh, December 10th, 1970. I remember the day it happened. I just, it all of a sudden just struck me. I can't count on anybody else to help me. If I'm going to do anything, I'm going to have to do it all by myself. And it was yep. traumatic as hell, Brandon. So at 16, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, just that was really traumatic, realizing I don't, I'm, nobody's going to help me do anything. And you had to know yeah. that at 16. Yep. And, and, you know, when I went through Navy SEAL training, I was in the Fleet Navy for a couple of years. And when I showed up, I was not in the best of shape. And it was, I struggled out of those 220 guys. I, I was probably in the top five of, you know, instructors knew my name because I, I was just not in great physical shape. And they tortured me for it. And, <laughs> but I, well, that's nice. But I had... You know, I had the mental fortitude to just know that I just had to survive and that, you know, they could say anything they wanted to me, but, you know, they'd have to get me out of there in a body bag for me to quit. Right. Um, so, that, and that's kind of what, as a parent now today, you know, my kids are in jujitsu. Uh, I make sure that they're put in situations where they can, and I think sports is an excellent opportunity as long as, long as it's not a sport where everybody wins. Um, right. You know, you set up the, you know, the children so they experience adversity and failure. And, then, and when they succeed, it's just that much, it's appreciated that much more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and just, I just try and make sure I put my own kids in those situations so, they're, so they have the, the right tools. Because you and I and Andy have all seen people in life that kind of, it's like that 24-year-old you're talking about. They get into the real world and they're, they leave the bubble and then, they, they hit life, and life is going to kick you in the teeth over and over. It's oh, just yeah. the way it works. It's, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. No, it certainly isn't. Did you have a feeling at 16 years old, 17, as time went by, did you ever feel you, your dad did that to you because he didn't love you, or or did he do it to you, to you because he did love you? I think it was because he did love me. My, my dad and I have had a really you know, on and off again relationship over the years. Mm-hmm. That has gotten in a pretty good place recently. Um, but but I never thought it was because he didn't love me. I, I thought it was because he, he did love me and knew I was just a stubborn, independent kid. And, mm-hmm. and he just, you know, trying to have a, you know, we had a family of four on a, on a 47-foot sailboat. <laughs> and it's tight, tight quarters. And, yeah, that uh, is, yeah. You know, it was a tough thing. My mom was really upset. I remember the, the day I left, she was crying, and my sister as well. But, you know, I think it, looking back, it was probably, you know, the, the right decision, and, and would have I would have made it same, or I would have put myself in that situation again. I, I think it was a great learning experience, and, and I, had, I was prepared to kind of go out on my own at that point. It really seems like it. Brandon, I have to ask you a question. This is a personal, my personal view on this, as I said. Uh, you get under pressure and making decisions. My problem is I can make decisions, but when I get under pressure, and I, I think I inherited this from my mother, I'm not sure, but when I get under pressure, I in some ways invent other things that put me even un, under even more pressure. Like if there's a problem, I make it much bigger than it actually is. Is that pretty common? I think so. 
Um, I, I think people naturally tend to, to invent these stories in their heads. Um, and, and I'll give you a quick story about making decisions under pressure. In the, in the SEAL community, we have this thing called a hooded box drill. And you're, you're jocked up with all your gear. You're, you're kind of hostage rescue gear. And then this hood comes down over your head. And then the hood, as soon as the hood goes up, you're thrown into this scenario. And I remember my first scenario, I got punched in the face. And, and there was a guy punched me in the face, another guy running at me with a gun, and another guy holding a knife to a, a woman's throat. And I had to weapon strike the guy that punched me, shoot him, shoot the guy running at me, and then shoot the guy in the head with the girl. And then they reset you, and you do that for 45 minutes straight, and they videotape every bit of it so they can critique you later. And so you just get into this situation where you're constantly making these split splits split-second decisions under pressure. And and what that does is just condition you so you you become very practiced and calm, cool, and collected when you make these decisions. And we do the same thing for the sniper students. We, we run a similar drill for them when I was teaching the Navy SEAL sniper school. And so I, I think it's important to, you know, getting back to what you were talking about, is just almost you know, writing down um, some type of decision matrix and just practice that and apply it. And eventually you, you won't even need to write it down. But once you get used to a, a, this system of, of being able to kind of step back and look at the situation uh, without emotion, and that's really hard, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to, to emotionally detach it is for yourself. Me, yeah. It is for me. Uh, but yeah. once you do it a few times and, and practice it, then it just becomes normal. And I, I talk about that in, in the book Total Focus. Total focus, uh, making a, a better decisions. Total focus, making better decisions under pressure. Brandon Webb, thank you very much for your time. Great talking to you, sir. Yeah, thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Absolutely, Brandon Webb, W E B B. Book is available everywhere. Total focus, make better decisions under pressure. We'll be right back. Tom Bernard Show. I'm Brad Huckle, president of North American Banking Company. Ask one of our bankers what they love about business banking. They always say the relationship with a client. Case in point, True North Oral Surgery and Implants is a longtime customer with a growing practice. Their banker, Julie Marshall, knows the ins and outs of what they do. So when they need working capital, an equipment loan, or funds for expansion, they call Julie. Are you looking for a banker you can count on? Give us a call. This is Tom. Why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience. Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. This is Tom, and I want to tell you a story about camping. A guy named Tim, his back pain, and his angry wife. You see, Tim went camping with his family, but he aggravated his recurring back problem a couple of days before when he was golfing with his buddies. His wife had to set up the campsite and do all the heavy lifting, and Tim couldn't do a whole lot with the two kids. Tim was not a happy camper. And neither was his wife. The following Monday, Tim's wife got him an appointment at Hopkins Health and Wellness Center, a DMR method clinic. Their team of physical therapists and chiropractors figured out what was really wrong with his back, quickly got him out of pain, and taught him how to keep it from coming back. And what did Tim say was the biggest benefit of finally handling his back problem? Happy wife, happy life. DMR clinics are a group of physical therapists, chiropractors, and allied medical spine specialists that can help you feel better fast. They have a 96% success rate. It's covered by insurance, and you don't need a referral. They have convenient locations in Hopkins, Woodbury, Rogers, and Blaine. For a free consultation, go to dmrmethod.com. That's dmrmethod.com.
Yeah, sorry to hijack the interview there, but when he started talking about fighting with his dad, I'm going through that with my 17-year-old. He's my, his mom kicked him out of the house the other night, so he decided. What? To, his mom kicked him out of uh, her house the other really? night, so he decided that he'd go hang out with. I think probably a girl for a couple of nights and skip school. Oh. So it's like, yeah, well, yeah. That's not what we were looking for. So we had some heart-to-hearts last night, and we'll see how it goes. But it's it's a, it's a difficult relationship sometimes. Yeah, it is. Andy, what would you have done if you we would, the family would have been on a sailboat and you at 16 hours said, sorry, Andy, but you got to go? What would you have even done? I really have no idea. Wouldn't that have been, I mean, that was just never a possibility. But for me to all of a sudden go, yeah, Andy, it's just not working out. You're going to have to get off. We're going to sail away and we're going to leave you here. In Tahiti. Yeah, well, at least he was in Tahiti. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I know, that's that's very, very odd. You know, a lot of people have been asking me about this. Would you bring up that story, self-service checkout scheme? Because people keep asking me uh, how, because I don't do self-service checkout. I figure I don't want to take people's jobs away from them, the checkers. I like going through that. Plus, I suck at it anyway, you know. Uh, Veal liver costs considerably more than fruit, but trying to pass it off as a fruit cost a German man considerably more than it would have to just pay full price for the meat. The 58-year-old businessman who makes nearly $30,000 a month scanned $58 worth of veal liver at the self-service checkout, but said it was fruit. He even had it concealed in a fruit bag, the Independent reports. He was caught and has been held in jail since December. Wow. He's been in jail for three months. (laughs) So the way that works is most stuff has the UPC code on it. Most of it does, yeah. yep. But when you buy, like, fresh produce or meat or something like that, it it doesn't. You weigh it, and it'll ask you to punch in what it actually is. Okay. So if you get something that's 20 bucks a pound and you say, oh, it's actually peanuts that are $3 a pound, it's going to charge you. So, so he's been in jail since December. For since December, seventeen for, bucks a pound, basically, or something for seventeen like bucks a pound. That's exactly right. So how do people? How do they not get scammed out of this? I, I'm sure people try this all the time. I, I, it, they probably have have closed circuit cameras and they watch for that. I would suspect. God, I, I would know. hope. Uh, in any case, he's been in jail since December until Munich's district court convicted him of theft. ABC Online reports the man who had previous convictions for theft and fraud and tax evasion and admitted to pulling the same self-service grocery trick three other times was fined at $256,000. You know, only in Germany can you do time for stealing liver. Yeah. (laughs) Says something about their food. Well, there is that. An Australian expert says studies show customers don't feel as bad about stealing when they're dealing with a machine rather than a human cashier. But a police detective says it is, in fact, still stealing. Well, of course it's still stealing. Even if it is the avocado and uh, you think you're saving $2, it's still shoplifting, he said. It's still stealing. It's still a crime. And if we catch you or you get caught, you will be charged. You have to tell people that that's stealing. Are people that's how that, dumb people are. I guess. They must be getting dumber by the day. Because if you don't know, taking a $58 uh, dollar piece of veal and saying that it's fruit uh the guy probably saved what would you guess 40 bucks yeah maybe 58 bucks for the liver about 18 bucks for the fruit probably yeah, they're germans no wonder they lost the war exactly it's only because america <laughs> stepped in otherwise they would have won that yeah, war no. hands down that would have been that would have been an easy victory for germany they lost twice twice that's right <laughs> oh for two in the 20th century they did <laughs> 
The great one and then the second one. Well, the, the war to end all wars, you mean, when France just rubbed its foot in Germany's face and pissed them off even more? I still don't. Why did we let France do that? Well, I think I've read about that. I remember when I was in college, I took a history class about it, and it wasn't just the French. They yeah, were the leaders, they, but right, the Americans were, were right behind them going, screw this, That's give us some true. dough. That is true. It was France's idea, and we did support it, and I don't never. Why do you want to humiliate someone? Yes, I mean, I understand. Well, that. And, and the proof is what happened after World War II. I mean, yes. two of our best allies are the Japanese and the Germans. That's exactly right. Well, until Trump came along with Angela Merkel. But, yeah, you know, well, we can fix that. Exactly, it's fixable. We'll send them some liver and call, <laughs> it, a, call it even. <laughs> Here, we'll send you 58 bucks worth of liver. You tell everybody it's fruit and you're good to go. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's... Uh, the whole situation, it just, everybody calm down. We, and we were talking about this earlier, and we'll talk just briefly about it again. We have to stop thinking. We have to get out of our minds that this is the worst it's ever been. It only looks the worst it's ever been because it's documented on Twitter and Facebook. And at some point, we'll look back on this and go, these are the good old days. Yeah, I Some wouldn't people, doubt it. A lot of people will. I would not doubt the that at all. Economy's rocking. I mean, it's doing really, really well. It's we're not not too worried about terrorism, much less than we were mm-hmm. ten or fifteen years ago. I mean, there's a lot of good things going on. Now the uh, the the interest rate going up. It's not bothering tax uh, the uh, the car business that much. It's not as a, it doesn't affect cars as much as it does housing. Well, housing is the number one thing. Huh? Because Chris is right. I mean, the people do buy on payments, and we see that in the car business too. But nobody's not going to buy a Camry because it's four dollars a month more. But you know, at two hundred dollars a month on a on a house budget, that's a big deal, especially when people are first getting into the market. How about this R. Kelly? What the hell is his problem? This guy is worth $160 million, and they just evicted him from his house because he missed his rent for like six months. Are you kidding? $11,000 a month rent. Couldn't find the stamp? I don't know. what. How do you not pay your rent for six months? What the hell's wrong with you? I mean, does that make any sense at all? Speaking of screwed up famous musicians, I just heard Fergie's version of the National Anthem the other night. Oh, my God. How embarrassing. Wow. That was just unreal. They Give were playing that, on. and then they played. Uh, I guess Roseanne Barr took a crack at her. I was listening yes, to did. Commie Radio, and they said, and and the woman that took the crack at her, this is her version of it. And then they played Carl Lewis doing the national anthem. Oh yeah, he was actually worse. I just it was terrible. But I think she did it on purpose. Is the problem? I think she was trying to do a jazz rendition. But you would think, uh, as a musician, especially surrounded by musicians, you would go, "Okay, nice idea, but you're not Diana Krall. This sounds like crap. Let's do something else." But do you think some, she actually practiced? Do you think she really? I I don't know. I would think she would have had to because she, you know, the 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 phrasing was different enough that had they hadn't practiced it, she would have thrown the whole band. Yeah, that's true. They well, were that's right, true. They yeah. were right behind her. Yeah, that's just true. Bad judgment. That's a very good point. Although it did give us a chance on the Tom Bernard show to play Bleeding Gums Murphy from The Simpsons, <laughs> which is the greatest, which is the greatest national anthem of all time. And the magnificent thing is, when it starts, the clock behind him says seven thirty, <laughs> and when he finishes, the time is seven fifty six. Bleeding Gums Murphy! National Anthem, sung tonight by Springfield, Rhythm and Blues, and Bleeding Gums Murphy! 
There is an alternate version of the National Anthem that I dearly love. It's a 1983 All-Star Game, and it's Marvin Gaye with basically oh, a yeah. beatbox. Yep. And he just he is so smooth. It's like, man, you are so We have good. it, as a matter of fact, right here. See how Molina just steps up? He's awesome. He's got the, well, it's not it's awesome. Dude. This is what she was trying to do. Why would you try to copy this? Yeah, not a good plan. Talk about an effortless singer. Just, he was. He was one of the greatest singers of all time, and his own father shot him to death. Yep. April Fools. April Fools. Was it April first? I don't know. It was April Fools, and it was was it it was over like five hundred bucks or something, wasn't it? Yeah. And his birthday is the next day. His birthday was April second. So April second. Yeah. For some reason, his father shot and killed him over. And it was not very much money either. But I tell you, what's going on is still one of the greatest albums ever recorded. God, that album is just amazing. But you're right, effortless. Yeah. He just sang, and it worked. Fergie it, sounded like somebody had a gun to her head. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. They're, they're, they're demanding oh. her pin at the ATM machine. Honestly, I don't know. What what was she think, thinking? It just it was absolutely horrible. And I think she can actually sing. I don't know, but I, I think she can. What do you think? Melina, can she sing? Uh... I don't know. I you think she can really die? I mean, well, she's she not what? Marvin Gaye, but no, does. but I mean, she what? Black Eyed Peas was her thing. Yep, Black Eyed Peas. So that nah. was her Which deal. Which is a very weird collection of people. Yeah. Why is Why is Trump uh, pissed off at uh, Sessions again? What Sessions do now? Oh no. Trump renews attacks on Sessions Obama over Russian inquiry. What is that? What does that got to do with Sessions now at this point? Poor Yoda. It was tw- yeah. He looks like Yoda, doesn't he? <laughs> He does look like Yoda. President Donald Trump attacked his own attorney general Wednesday, asking in a Twitter post why Jeff Sessions had not been investigating Democrats for Russian interference in the 2016 election. Question. Well, because he was a state, he was a United States senator at the yeah, time, wasn't right. he? Alabama. Yeah. What are you, what are you talking about? Uh, 2016, he was still a U.S. senator. Uh, if all the Russian meddling took place during the Obama administration right up to January 20th, why aren't they the subject of the investigation, he wrote? Why didn't Obama do something about the meddling? Why aren't Dem crimes under investigation? Ask Jeff Session. Well, let's see. He investigated the Russians, and he threw 35 diplomats out of, out of the country. But other than that, he didn't really do much. I have a question oh, for God, you. And maybe I'm wrong about this. But that's a, that's a direct t- quote from the tweet. Is that right? Did that come right from a tweet? Yeah. 
I believe so, yeah. He doesn't even know his own U.S. Attorney General's name? No, his, he has to. His name is Sessions, not Session. He calls him Jeff Session. Yeah, I'll, I'd give him a pass on that. He could have <laughs> fat-fingered it. You know, nah, I, maybe. Hopefully. Uh, hopefully. You don't even know the name of your own... Your own <laughs> Donnie does enough that makes my blood boil. I'll give him a pass on misspelling somebody's name. That's, That's the biggest thing we have to worry about. Everything is really great. Well, you might be right about that, but I just... I, it's like, what are you thinking, man? What are you thinking? That's all I have to say. I know that Sessions is just sitting there going, why did I take this damn job? Well, he has to be. <laughs> oh, my God, why did I take this job? What, what am I thinking? What I am I doing? I made in Alabama. Why did I take this job? <laughs> I love it. It all works out for me. That's all I know. But um, So he's mad at him because, uh, I, you know, see, Donald, the problem that I have with Donald still going on and on and on about this, if nothing really happened, why don't you just let it? Oh, you know what? That was a misprint by the newspaper. He actually did okay. print his name out as Jeff Sessions. Nice spelling, Don. Yeah, yeah so go. He, he did spell Sessions. It's the, uh, where did that story, uh, where was that story lifted from? I know it's in the Star Tribune, but uh, does it say? New York Times. New York Times. That doesn't shock mm. me. New York Times is a turd, horrible, horrendous newspaper. The worst newspaper ever. No, I don't know. They have an editorial staff, though, I think. They're one of the few that still do. Yeah, I think you might be right Usually about pretty that. pretty good writing, whether you like the content or not. No, it's a it different isn't. story. No, that's the whole thing. I just really wish that, that all news organizations would be a little more even-handed on things instead of taking their absolute position and shoving it down your throat. Well, we've talked about this a lot before, and I think part of the – there's a lot of problems, but part of it is the race to be first. I mean, yeah. we don't have a news cycle anymore. It's all the time. So in the old days mm-hmm. when we had the morning news and the evening news, if you're in the news business, you had you know two to eight hours to get the story right. Now right. they've got four right. minutes, and they screw everything up, and I don't know. They do. It's true. I just, uh, but, but I think you're absolutely right, and we can we can take our break coming up here uh, with the thought. You're right. Someday we are going to look back and go, ah, oh, the good old days. That's right. And talk about today. You're at, Mike you are Molina was single. That. He hadn't like overpopulated the world yet. <laughs> Doctor Paul Nathanson, our special guest, coming up next. Our boys broken. We'll find out what that's all about right after this Tom Bernard show. Hi, this is Tom. If you spend any time at the lake, you can relate to hanging out on the dock with family and friends. Let Flow enhance your experience with their rock solid dock systems. You see, Flow's passion to invent a better way to make life easier comes through in every product they make. Flow boat lifts are a breeze to level using a cordless drill with their patented easy level system. Flow is about making things easy, meaning. You have more time to enjoy being at the lake. Isn't that why you go there in the first place? See for yourself why they've been perfecting leisure time since 1983. Visit Flo at the Minneapolis Lake Home and Cabin Show at the Convention Center February 23rd, 24th, and 25th. Be sure to ask for the show special where with a qualified purchase, you'll receive a free three-piece furniture set or a free wireless remote. And mention you heard this ad on KQ for an additional $50 off a dock or lift system. To find out more about Flo Systems, Visit their website at F-L-O-E-I-N-T-L dot com. Flow docks and lifts. A better way. Tom Bernard here. If you're ready to sell your home, you've probably heard that you should wait until spring. But why wait for temperatures to rise when the market is hot right now? Not selling in winter is a total myth. Truth is, buyers are hungry. And while other sellers and real estate agents hibernate, the Chris Lindahl team is selling homes like hotcakes. Chris has done a great job. We have our house on the market with Chris right now, as a matter of fact. And the video he did is amazing. 
The Chris Lindahl team is America's number one REMAX results team for a reason. They play to win, and they've got the skill players to sell your home fast. In fact, they sell a home on average every nine hours for over the MLS average. Don't wait until spring to sell your home. Call the Chris Lindahl team at 763-401-SOLD. That's 763-401-SOLD. The first two callers will get a free staging package. This is a huge value, and it's only going to the first two Tom Bernard Show callers from this ad. That's 763-401-SOLD. Call now, get the free staging package, and grab the opportunity before winter is over. Oh, picket lines and picket signs. Don't punish me with brutality. God, talk to me so you can see what's going on. you still have that jacket? Marvin Gaye yeah. jacket? I think I do. I think I do. Love Marvin Gaye. Dr. Paul Nathanson with us, ladies and gentlemen. Our boys broken. Oh, I tell you, we could talk for a long time about that, Dr. Nathanson. Our boys broken. Uh, where do we even start with this? It's toxic masculinity analyst dr paul nathanson is an intersexual dial uh, dialogue academic and together with dr Catherine k young have defined the field of misandry in our culture they are the authors of well many many things uh dr nathanson what seems to be the problem uh once again 19 year old nicholas cruz accused of gunning down 17 people at a florida high school last week Now, school shootings do go back in America all the way to 1927. Um, And people do think, oh, it's it's, it's all happened recently. It's it's been going on nowhere near as much uh, back in the day, but but it's been going on for quite some time. Is there a great deal of pressure on boys? What is going on here, doctor? Uh, First of all, I'm, I'm having a bit of trouble hearing you. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, But uh, yes, the question, what is wrong? Well, um, I've been reading the um, reports uh, in newspapers and uh, <clears throat> what the journalists say and pundits say on the talk shows, um, and it seems to me that they're all talking about one of two responses. One of the responses is, well, we can solve all this with gun control. Um, the other response is that these individual boys are just pathological uh, write-offs, and uh, nothing can be generalized from them, and nothing can be done uh, to no mental health institution can can predict which boy is going to go off the deep end. Um, Now, I think both of these approaches are mistaken. In the first place, I don't think gun control, although it might well make, uh, mitigate the danger to society Uh with fewer guns around, but that's not going to solve the problem of why these boys are, are acting as they do. Um, they might not use guns. They might use some other method. Um, and I think that as for the mental health approach, um, I'm not sure that all these boys are, in fact, mentally ill. I mean, they don't um, have hallucinations. They don't uh, hear voices. They don't... Uh, um, have the usual signs of being out of touch with reality. So what is wrong? Well, one of the things that's wrong uh, is that almost all of these boys have no fathers. That's one of the things that does link them. Not much else links them, but that links them. Um, 
And I think that the absence of fathers, um, it's not just a social problem, there's a cultural problem here. Yes. Because um, our culture has come to the point of denying that fathers really do have any significant and distinctive role within family life. They're just assistant mothers. So if you can't have a father, you can either have two mothers or you can um, just get along with mom's boyfriend or or the um, the images they see on TV or movies. So I think that there's a real problem with understanding fatherhood, why fathers are necessary, and they are, because fatherless children don't all go off the deep end, but they do suffer from almost every kind of uh, disadvantage uh, in whether it's in school or economically or any other way. Um, so there is a problem here, but people are not looking at this from the, from the point of view of how can we help boys. Um, it's only how can we protect society from boys. And that's a major thing that I've gotten out of the coverage of this shooting. You know, it's interesting because I grew up, uh, by the time I was t- 10 years old, my father was institutionalized. He came back home for a short time. When I was 16, but uh, he had uh, schizophrenia. Uh, I grew up in a family with five boys and two girls, and it's really interesting what that did do to our house. I, I will never forget it, Doctor. It's My father and I never did get along all that well, but not having that father figure around, absolutely. Even though he wasn't a great father, uh he was mentally ill, still having a father in the house was a completely different experience. Yes, yes. First of all, I'm not trying to say that everybody who lacks a father ends up sure. a mass murderer. And secondly, um, I, I also don't think that, that um, having a strong emotional rapport with a father is necessarily um, the, the major factor, mm-hmm. as you point out. Um, it's not, and it's not just having a man around the house either. The, the function of fathers is not primarily an emotional one. Um, your first um, emotional contact is with your mother um, as an infant who, um, who, who nurses you. Um, and you learn from uh, your mother that you have unconditional love. Right. Um, but you learn from something else from a father as you grow older, and you begin to enter the larger world, you learn um, that you have to earn respect, first from your father and then from other people. And that's something that is distinctively a father's role. Um, Now, uh, so here we are with um, millions and millions of children without fathers, and and fathers are necessary for girls also. Mm -hmm. But girls at least can identify with their mothers because they have the same bodies. Um, so boys are at a slightly greater disadvantage, well, a much greater disadvantage in a fatherless home. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, but I've yet to see anybody... Well, no, that's not true. Su- Suzanne Venker wrote two um, articles, I think it was in USA Today, in which she nailed this very thing. But very few people are doing that. It's uh, the, Even the victims uh, of the school shooting in Florida are taking their fight um, to the state capitol, and and they're uh, and it's all very well. Uh, they're becoming active, and you know, there's nothing. I don't see anything wrong with gun control, um, but it's not the it's not the cause of that problem. Right. 
Uh, Dr. Nathanson, it's interesting. I, I talk about this once in a while. I can't throw my support behind any particular political group because exactly what you're talking about and combination of um, the fact that, uh, that uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson decided that it was a great idea to tell everyone that in order to receive welfare benefits, there could not be a father in the home. There couldn't have been a bigger mistake made. Making fathers leave the home so the family can receive welfare benefits was a horrible idea. And then just a few years later, you know, 15 years later, whatever it was, uh, Ronald Reagan, a Republican, came along and decided, you know what, we should just open up all the institutions. And uh, if people have uh, some mental issues, they're going to probably have to learn to uh, deal with them by themselves. Uh, it's exactly why I can't support any – look, I, if I find a good candidate, I go, hey, that's that's really nice, and I think I can support them. But I can't be a Democrat or a Republican for the, the exact things you're talking about. Making fathers leave the house in the 1960s was a terrible idea. Yes, and, and that wasn't the only thing that was making fathers leave. Another thing was um, – the whole cultural devaluation of fathers. I mean, look at how fathers are presented on TV. Right. You're idiots. Um, look at the movement for single mothers by choice. Um, it's not enough that single mothers by default are treated now as heroes, which in some ways they are because they're trying to do their best, um, but they have been glorified as cultural heroes. And single mothers by choice, basically they're saying... We don't even want a father. Yeah, that's uh, Andy. My son's on the show. Andy, how do you feel about that? Do you want a father? Uh, well, it seems to be a good thing so far. <laughs> There's a rigging endorsement. Huh? It's working out so far, Paul. Uh, apparently, my own son thinks it's, it's it's worked out well so far. I love your take on this whole situation because I don't think. Um, matter of fact, I know if we focus on one area of it, well, they're all mentally ill. Well, that's not necessarily true. Well, it's all about gun control. Well, that's an element of it, but that's not the total answer. They have all these different uh, answers to the problem that by themselves, standalones, it's not going to solve the problem. What can we do about, about fathers that are, uh, uh, that are, that are absent? Uh, what, what well, look, we... Uh, we have to start caring about boys and men. All right. That's the first Good. thing. I like that. Um, and we're living at this age of Me Too, and um, whatever good it does, I'm sure that it's very helpful to women to talk about their problems. And uh, uh, But look what's happening as a result of it. Uh, we have people being accused um, outside of the court of law, bypassing, you know, uh, presumption of innocence and the legal tradition that's taken centuries to build up. Um, we have heads rolling, male heads rolling, um, and it's about time we started thinking, what is there, have, have we not understood something about men? Do men not have needs? Yeah, that's very interesting you bring that up because I think maybe back in the days, oh, men are these big, strong guys and they don't really have any emotions and they don't, you know... I just watched the movie Rebel Without a Cause. As a oh, yes. I just watched it kind of by – maybe it wasn't by coincidence, Dr. Nathanson. Maybe there was something that clicked in my head because the father figures in that movie were terrible. Yeah. Uh, the Natalie Wood's father slaps her across the face because she tries to kiss him. Good night. 
uh, James Dean's father, Jim Backus, in the movie, is a very weak character. How long has this been going on, Dr. Nathanson? Well, um, I think that the, the larger problem that I call misandry, which is the sexist counterpart of misogyny, mm-hmm. has been going on, well, it's probably been the two phenomena have probably been going on since we came down from the trees. But, the, but they've been exacerbated. The polarization between men and women has been greatly exacerbated in the past, uh, I don't know, 50 years. Um, and, you know, there was this sexual revolution in the 60s. Um, and um, so women had birth control pills, and they decided that they were going to live exactly the way men live, that there's no difference between men and women. They have the same needs, the same interests. Um, we had the Cosmo girl, who was the counterpart of, of the Playboy, um, and um, the idea was that the more sex you had, the better, and uh, it didn't matter whether it was in the context of marriage. Now, all of those things did not, certainly did not strengthen the family, but what happened more recently was that women have been decided, have decided that, you know what, maybe all that wasn't a good thing for women. Maybe women have their own needs, and maybe they don't want to be treated like men. Um, so then this counter-sexual revolution is what's, I think, underlying this Me Too movement. Um, and it's unfortunate that there's so much confusion because women are sending so many mixed messages to men, double messages. There's so much confusion. Men are not mind readers. Um, and the whole thing is ending up in a kind of, um, as you must have heard many times by now, uh, a, a kind of witch trial. I would call it a moral panic, mm-hmm. which is what happens when any society becomes very threatened. They feel very threatened. They look around for who's causing their anxiety. Uh, they target one group and project all the negativity onto that group. And that's what happens in a witch hunt. That's what happened during the Red Scare in the 50s. That's what happened with the, the recovered memory syndrome panic in the uh, 90s, the 80s and 90s. Um, so we've had these moral panics, uh, quite a few of them, and uh, they take about 10 or 15 years until they get so out of control that somebody has to stop it. Um, but they do incalculable damage in the meantime. And we're right in the middle of that now. I think that is true. Dr. Nathanson, how would someone reach out to you if they wanted to get a hold of you? Pardon me? How would someone reach out to you if they wanted to get a hold of you? Find well, out more. Well, uh, you, I think, have my email address. We will post it and make sure, and the, yes, if that's all right. That. We, I and I sure. answer all my mail. I'm very anxious to, uh, you know, talk to people. Um, I answer all their questions. So please uh, encourage your listeners to do that. We'll get it done. Dr. Paul Nathanson, thank you very much, doctor. Thank you. Have a good day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tom Bernard Show.